we are studying through First Peter, and we have uh, entitled this series Weird, uh, that there ought to be something supernatural, something different about our lives. And uh, Paul has, I mean, Peter has mentioned a lot about suffering and talked about obeying government and our wives and our husbands and We've seen some, looked at some really, really hard truths, and I, I will tell you, it's not always easy, rarely easy, to bring these hard truths. My, my flesh, in, in many ways, battles. Um, it would be a lot easier to uh, just preach easier sermons, let's just say that, but I was reminded and I really struggled whether to share this or not um, because I don't, I don't, I don't want, I don't want anybody to take it the wrong way and it be about me. It's not, I don't share this because of it's not about me, and I hope you hear that. But I was reminded uh, this week uh, of everything that we've been looking over the past few weeks, and and um, you know, I realized that you know we probably spent longer in First Peter than than most would, and. But I was reminded of, of the beauty of, of preaching verse by verse, of digging deep into the Word, of everything really that we're seeing in First Peter, of not fearing man more than we fear God, of being ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us, and doing it with gentleness and respect, and being willing to be mocked and... Uh, set aside because of God's glory by an email that I received um, a few days, uh, last week, a week ago before Labor Day. And I, I want to share, again, I, I want to share what they wrote to encourage you. Not It happened to be written to me, and it happens to be somewhat about me, but, but I want to I encourage you with that. Of the of standing firm, and I, I won't read the whole. I don't want to read the whole email. I, I don't want to take the time to do that. But but I think it speaks to the fruit of what we're seeing here in First Peter: the fruit of of being weird, the fruit of being willing to stand in God's grace, the fruit of being willing to to suffer, to to not water down the truth, whether it's from the pulpit, whether it's in your neighborhood, whether it's at your schools, whether it's your workplaces. Where, wherever it is. And, and the, the gentleman, he and his wife are writing this email, and, and I'll, I, I kind of phrase it for you, but he said, you probably don't recall our family. We visited your church back when it was an early plant when we had and when we had two children instead of six. We were atheists, at the time, and had been invited to church by Ashley Jones. Said the first couple of services, even if I didn't really believe what you were teaching, I enjoyed how thoroughly researched and cited your teachings were. That's his polite way of saying your sermons are too long. That's, that's his nice way of saying you spoke way too long. Amen, Raymond, shut up. In God's name. No, I'm teasing righteously but on the third service but on the third service easter 
He says, you had the nerve to proclaim firmly and without compromise that there was one way and one way only to come to God as well as several other exclusive statements. When we left, I complained to, and he put the name of his wife, about the arrogance of the message and said I would never come back to such a closed-minded church. I'm thinking, I don't know where this email is going at this point. He says, I write to you today to say thank you for not compromising the truth. Because sometime later we repented and became followers of Christ. And it was the uncompromising preaching of the word of God that he used to draw, him, to draw us to himself. He says, we came for a few weeks and although we did not come to Christ immediately, our time at your church had a huge impact on our family and both of us became Christians a few years later. He wrote, I am grateful for your uncompromising dedication to the word and thankful you were willing to offend me years ago. The amazing, amazing, just the greatness of God's word is this. This man, he, he, walked, he, he and his wife have walked away in, in dedication to Christ from a very, very, very lucrative job. And they are taking their six children to Kenya to serve as full-time missionaries. All, all because, listen, God's word. Not compromising God's word. Standing firm in grace. I, I mean, these are, these are those emails, you, know, you don't get these very often. I was on cloud nine, I took them to, we went and had lunch at Hungry Harry's so I could meet them and just pray for them and have a time of fellowship with them and... Uh, you know, how we could hopefully serve them as a, as a church and maybe partner with them moving forward. But listen, it's God's word that brings about salvation. It's refusal to water down the truth. Listen, if we would have watered down the truth, if we would have watered down the gospel, they would have had nothing to repent of from their sin. God promises that his word will not return void. He promises in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the, the weird thing was, was when we had lunch, he couldn't quit saying, Chris, thank you for offending me. Thank you for, thank you for, for, for not backing down. And j he just kept saying, thank you for offending me. Thank you for offending me. And it's what we've seen in First Peter. The gospel, listen, the gospel will always, in and of itself, be offensive. You and I cannot be you and I cannot be offensive. We are to do it with gentleness. We are to present it with gentleness and respect. But the message will always be offensive. To tell somebody that they're a sinner is offensive. To tell someone that, that, that no matter how matter good, no matter how good, how matter, no matter how much they clean up their act, they can never, ever, ever earn their way to God, that is offensive. 
And, and Paul in, Rome, in 1 Corinthians 1 says very clearly that the, if we are to boast, let us boast in God. The re, part of the reason the gospel is so offensive is it, it assassinates any ounce of pride that I may have in working my way to God. It assassinates every ounce of my pride. There is nothing, nothing, nothing that Chris Bash can do to merit God's forgiveness, to merit reconciliation and of my own. It's by grace, through faith. My, my encouragement to you is, is be willing to stand firm in the grace of God. Be, be willing to, to, to stand up, and as we looked at this Wednesday night, be willing to be the Nathan who stands in front of a David graciously and says, listen, you're the man. Be, be willing to, to, be, to be ostracized. Be willing to be unfriended. Be, be willing to be alienated, people, because of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I pray that we would, be a, we would be a people who are never ashamed of the gospel, but we're also a people who are willing to be shamed because of the gospel. But never ashamed of the gospel. For in it is salvation. The righteousness of God is revealed. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. It's to the Greek. It is the, the gospel is God's offer of salvation, of God making unrighteous people righteous so that they can enter into God's presence. It's not about being good. It's not about being good enough. Listen, good people don't go to heaven. Great people don't go to heaven. Only righteous people go to heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He later said, I think it's in verse 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Righteousness, that word, it implies perfection. Good people don't go to heaven. Perfect people go to heaven. Because of our sin, we're not perfect. It's like a hundred question test and you've got to get a hundred to pass and you missed the first question. It doesn't matter if you get the next 99 right. It doesn't matter if you get the next 999 right. You can get the next 9,999 right. You'll never, ever, ever get that percentage back to 100. Do you understand that? It'll never, ever be 100 again. And when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, that was a shot across the bow because the Pharisees were very, very externally righteous. They did the right things. They looked the part. They were very religious. You know what Jesus is saying? It's not about being religious. It's not about being good. It's not about externally doing the right things. It's about an internal heart transformation. That's the gospel. And our, right, and, our, and our activity flows from that. And, and that's why we're only looking at verse 18 today. It's, it's, it's singularly a very, very clear picture of the gospel. And, and, and late next week, we'll look at verses 
19 through 22, which might possibly be the, the most complicated, difficult passage in the New Testament to interpret. So it didn't quite, it didn't hurt my feelings to give myself one more week, Tom, to think about it, to think about it. You won't be here? Well, good, I can say whatever I want to say then. But but as I looked at verse 18, I thought, let's just pause here. Because listen, as believers, we have a tendency, we have a tendency. It's like this. When we're sick and the doctor gives gives us a prescription, Raise your hands. How many people stop taking the pills when they, when, they just, when they start feeling better, they stop taking the pills? Be honest. And, and I have a feeling that in some ways that's kind of a picture of the gospel. We repent, our sins are forgiven, and we, we set it aside. And the gospel, Paul, what Peter writes here is encouraging believers to stand firm. And you know what the first thing he does is? He, he gives believers the gospel. And, and again, context is huge, especially next week as we dig into verses 19 and, and 20 and 21. But, but context, context. We cannot separate these verses from their context. Context is always king. Look, look what he said, and, and when you want to understand the context of a verse, don't just look at verse 18. Look at the verses before it. Look at the, ver- look at the verses especially before it. So how do we get there? Especially when you see words like therefore. But in verses 13 and 14, what is, what is the point Peter is making? Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Look at verse 17. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for what is wrong. But both of those passages say the same thing. Peter is making a point to suffering believers that it is better to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for doing what is wrong. So so whatever, whatever we find in verses 18, 19, 20, 21, 22... They have to be interpreted in light of Peter's main goal. Peter's goal is to encourage suffering believers that it is better to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for doing what is wrong. Do do not fear man. That's the context. Go to 4.1. You want to look at what's after this crazy passage. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so to live the rest of his time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. Do you see what the context is? It's the same. Arm yourselves with the gospel. Arm yourselves with the truth that it is better to suffer for doing what is right than it is to prosper or to suffer even for doing what is wrong. Again, everything Peter writes in verse chapter 4, therefore, when you read therefore, you have to, again, not to be redundant, you have to understand what is it therefore. And he points, he, when he writes that, you have to look back. Again, Chapter 4 is continuing to equip believers to stand firm in the face of their suffering. And the very first thing he does is 
remind them of the gospel. I think that's huge. That's what we just did with the Lord's Supper. That's why Jesus himself said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remind yourselves. Remind ourselves of the gospel, of, of Christ's work, of, our, of, our, of, of his own vindication. He who suffered because of other people's sins. If there was ever a picture of unjust suffering, it's the gospel. Christ was totally, totally innocent. And he suffered, even to the point of death. And, and, and Peter talk, says, verse 22, he is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. The context is arm yourselves with, with the gospel. He, even chapter 4, 12 through 19, he goes on again to say, again, go to, go to verse uh, 15. Saying the same thing. Verse 14. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. Again, verse 19. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Do you see the context? It is to equip us that, listen, even in the midst of unjust suffering, stand firm. Even in the midst of unjust suffering, it, you have not been separated from God's love. You have not been separated from God's people. You have not been alienated from God. The reality is the gospel reminds us that it's through that suffering that we will actually be vindicated just as Christ was. And that's what Paul says here in verse 18. The resurrection vindicates, and that's the main point. Peter strengthens believers in the face of unjust suffering by reminding them that the suffering they are experiencing will not be the final word, as Christ's resurrection guarantees that, one, that we will be one day vindicated just as Christ was, in spite of unjust suffering. Even the passage in Romans eight fifteen that Daniel read this morning, he, 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 he says... If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. The glorification comes through, it go, it, it's, it's achieved through the suffering. And, and, and again, Peter is using Christ as he's done already to encourage that it is better to suffer for doing what is right than for what is wrong. And in verse 18 specifically, how this accomplishes the whole point of, of vindicating, of standing firm, is that he reminds them, he encourages them to stand firm by reminding them of Christ's own suffering, but also what it accomplished. What it accomplished. And again, that is... Again, he holds out, he's answering the question, why is it better to suffer for doing what is evil than for what is, for doing what is right than for what is evil? And he takes their minds, he takes the believers' minds to contemplate the completed work of Christ. That Christ's vindication, the gospel, the salvation, it was a road marked with suffering. 
unjust suffering, and yet it culminated in vindication and glory. That's the promise that he holds out for believers. And this is the context. It's better to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for what is doing evil in the sight of God. And again, this is the third time that Peter takes everything back to Jesus. In chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, he goes back and holds up Christ, the, the, the spotless blood of Christ. In, in chapter 2, he talks about obeying, obeying evil men. And he holds up Christ. He says he's our example. Here in the context of su- it's better to suffer for doing what is right than for what is wrong, he goes back to Christ in, in verses 18 through 22. All three involve suffering. All three cases, suffering. And beyond this, all of, all of Scripture Holds out an offer. Listen, you come to Christ, you get your sins forgiven. Here's what the road's going to be like while you sojourn on this earth. Suffering. Suffering. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his name's sake. Philippians 3.10, for I desire to know Christ and to fellowship in his res- the power of his resurrection, but also the fellowship of his sufferings. 1 Timothy 3.12, expect suffering. So everything he says here, it's, listen, it's about, it's better to do, even if it involves suffering, it is better to stand firm and obey the Lord than to balk and to suffer for doing what is evil inside of our Lord. And you see there on your handout, Peter is grounding our willingness to suffer unjustly in Christ's willingness to suffer unjustly. It's understanding the gospel. Comprehending the gospel. Everything is grounded in 1 Peter. Everything is grounding in what, grounded in what Jesus has already accomplished on your behalf. And you know what he's saying? Go do likewise. All fueled. Stand firm knowing that what you're suffering is going to accomplish. If it involves suffering, stand firm. Look to Christ. Take an inventory of what Christ suffered and accomplished on your behalf and stand firm. This is essentially what Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. And then he did what? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Listen, we're we're following Jesus. The road he walked was marked with suffering. If we follow him, what shall our road be marked with? Suffering. Suffering. And he's saying, stand firm. But but he's saying, you're not alone. Jesus is our example. There's, again, as Paul says in Philippians, there's tremendous fellowship in knowing that our Savior also suffered. And yet, Jesus' suffering was unique and unrepeatable. And yet, they, at the same time, they encourage us when we face unjust suffering that Christ's, Christ's death and his resurrection was a stupendous victory over the forces of evil. Peter's going to say that in verse 22. He said that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. 
having died, and in his death, having nailed all of our trespasses to the cross, having satisfied all the debts, nailed them to a cross, and in doing so, subdued our greatest enemies. You see how Peter is saying, stand firm, believers, stand firm. Go back to the gospel. Again, even in Ephesians 6, he says, stand firm. The, the, the warfare, the armor and all that, the, go, the shoes, the gospel, to stand firm. Why? Because nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, and that comes through the gospel. In verse 18, he does this by reminding them of what might possibly be the most concise, comprehensive account of Christ's work on behalf of sinners. And so I want to take the next few minutes to remind us of exactly what the gospel did for us. That we would be able to stand firm. That even we as believers would feed off of the gospel every single day. The gospel is not something that we get saved by and then we move over here and we live by something else. We get saved by the gospel, we live by the gospel. We, we never move away from the gospel. And Peter writes, for Christ... Again, why is it better to suffer for doing what is right than what is wrong? For Christ also died for sins. Listen, Christ died for sins. Remind yourself of that. Christ's death was, 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 was for sins. The, the translation here literally means in connection with sins. In, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he writes... My little, he says, and he himself is the propitiation, that means satisfactory payment, for our sins. Not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Do you see the sufficiency of Christ's death? The, the phrase for sins here, that's the phrase that you would see in the, New, in the Old Testament with regards to the atonement. Go to Leviticus 15 in the day of the atonement. Why were all those rams and goats and bulls and all those slaughtered for sins? Why? Because Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness of sins. It was a picture. It was a picture of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Why do we die? Because we're sinners. Christ's death was for sins. It was a sin offering. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities, that is your sin, has made a separation between you and your God. Isaiah 59.2. Our sin, listen, our sin is why we die. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The penalty of that is death. And that sin is what separates us from God. Listen, our sin, my sin, your sin is our greatest enemy. It's not Satan. It's not other people. The greatest problem in the world, the gra your greatest problem, my greatest problem, your neighbor's greatest problem, your co-worker's greatest problem, the kids at your school who you sit in class with, their greatest problem is their sin. That sin separates them from a holy God. Please hear that. Because, we're, because as sinners... We have no right to approach a holy God. God is holy. We in and of ourselves are sinners apart from the gracious blood of Christ being, being shed upon our hearts. 
We are separated. That sin separates us from a holy God. Peter gets to that where he says that they might bring us, that he will bring it in a minute, but he says that he might bring us to God. The biggest issue in my life and your life, listen, they're not floods, it's not cancer, it's not crime, it's not war, it's not my job, it's not my marriage, it's not my kids. My biggest issue is that in my sin, I am cut off from fellowship with God. And that's, again, our sins is why Christ died. We need a way for us to be brought back to God. Because in our sin, we were alienated from, Christ, with, from God. And to die separated from God due to the penalty of our sins and the presence of our sins, that is the worst, that is the worst thing that could possibly happen to anyone. To die in their sins. To suffer eternally for your sin. And Christ, especially considering Christ has made a way for that to be reconciled. For that sin to be forgiven. Again, worse than any temporal suffering we'll face here on this earth. Do you understand why, how Peter is using this to encourage believers? No suffering that you face on this earth will be compared to the suffering you will face if you die alienated from God. Any suffering that you face as a believer is far less than suffering eternally in your sin. And as Daniel said this morning from Romans 8.18, it won't compare to the glory that is to be revealed in us. That is why it is better to suffer now for doing what is right than to suffer for doing what is evil in the sight of God. Christ died for sins. Let that, he says, let that encourage you, believer. Christ died for sins. But he died for sins, here's the second point, once and for all. And, and, and all throughout Hebrews, that is the message of Hebrews, the sufficiency, the superiority of Christ. Hebrews 7.27, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, listen, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, listen, who does not need daily like those high priests in the, in the Old Testament to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did once for all when he offered up himself. Do you see the sufficiency, the superiority of what Christ did? He didn't need to bathe and put on special linens and do all this stuff like the high priest had to do in, his, in, in, in the Old Testament and deal with his own sins first. Christ had no sins. And he doesn't need to keep doing it over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because he did it once for all, the unjust or the just for the unjust. The superiority of what Christ has done, even in Hebrews 9, 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 26, otherwise he would not need to suffer once since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He puts sin away by sacrificing himself. 
Hebrews 10.10, By this we all have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. Hebrews 10.10. Romans 6.10 says the same thing. We did not, when we took the Lord's Supper a moment ago, we did not re-crucify Christ. He was crucified once and for all. We reminded ourselves of His crucifixion. We didn't recreate it. There's a big deal there. On, on Thursday nights, Dwayne started this Thursday for our men. I'm doing it, and he'll do it every other Thursday. And on the odd ones, opposite him, I'm, I'm going to teach on Thursday nights. And we're going to walk through some, some, uh, our statement of beliefs and, and just some distinctives of Christianity so that we're able to defend ourselves against all the other false religions out there and the cults that are out there so that we'll, we'll be able to stand firm, that we'll know what we believe, but we'll know why we believe it. And even in the Lord's Supper, there's a huge difference among denominations and amongst churches on, on even when they take the Lord's Supper. Those, we, don't, we didn't re-crucify Christ. We reminded ourselves that Christ was crucified. And you, and you see the, that what seemingly can be an honest... No, no. They say, why does it matter? It matters because you're undermining the sufficiency of what Christ did if I've got to do it over and over and over again for it to be sufficient. You're undermining it. So it does matter. And, and it, sounds, it sounds cool in today's world for us to say, well, let's just take all these different groups and let's just focus on our similarities and forget about our differences and let's all just come together and be unified. We can't. Because truth. Christ, there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That separates us. The sufficiency of Jesus Christ separates us. Now, I'm not talking about whether you were sprinkled or whether you were dunked. We're, we're talking about core salvation gospel issues here. And anything that undermines the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ, listen to me, I'm going to draw a line in the sand. And we're not going to have fellowship. No, no different than if you thought, well, Chris, can you come over to my house and can you leave your wife at home? What are the chances I'm going to come hang out with you? Zero. If you're going to undermine the sufficiency of what Jesus Christ did, we're not going to be able to have fellowship. Once and for all. There's a reason he's not on the cross. Because it's finished. It's completed. He's not redoing it every Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper. And I'm not trying to pick on that. I'm just showing that's one example. That's why we don't believe in baptismal regeneration. You're undermining the sufficiency of Christ. You're adding a work. Go to Romans 4, 5. It, whoever believes in Christ will be deemed righteous. For if a man works, it is not regarded as grace, but as a wage. If I work for it, then I earned it. It's no longer grace. And I don't mean to get sidetracked there, but, but, but forgive me, it's, these are big deals to me. It matters. And we're going to stand firm on that. Are people going to leave? Yes, they are, but okay, okay, that's fine. 
I mean, I'm not glad they're leaving, but I'm not balking at the gospel to appease people. I'm not going to paint this picture that you just, oh, we're just going to be this, you know, come one, come on, whatever you believe, we'll all just get along, we'll all go to heaven and rowboat. No, we're not. Sorry. As great, as cool as that sounds today. I'll have fellowship with anybody. And listen, the line is drawn at Christ. The gospel. And I'm not talking about unbelievers. We ought to have fellowship with unbelievers. They don't, they don't, they don't know Christ. We, we're here, we exist to seek them. I'm talking about people who profess to be believers and yet undermine the sufficiency of the gospel. Christ died once and for all. And, and the debt for all of my sins, listen, past, present, future, was paid in a single sacrifice for all time. Think about that. Like, I can't fathom paying the penalty for Chris Basham's sin. Never mind paying the penalty and suffering the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world. And yet Christ did it. You see how that fits into the context of it's better to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for doing what is evil? Think about that. When we, you and I are suffering, when you and I are cast out, when you and I are be unfriended, when you and I are, you know, students, when, you, when the cool people don't want to hang out with you because you're a Christian, think about the gospel. Let your mind go back to the gospel. Let that be your identity. Let the fact that Jesus Christ has adopted you into his family, let that flood over you when that group won't adopt you into their group. When the neighbors won't come over or whatever because you're a Christian. Go to the gospel and say, my identity and my, 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 is found in Christ and he has accepted me through Christ. Stand firm. Go back to the gospel and stand firm. But, but not only has, has he died for sins once and for all, he died for sins once and all as a substitute, the just for the unjust. M many of your trans minds says the just for the unjust. I, I wish it said the righteous for the unrighteous. The word just, it means righteous. Christ was the righteous one. He died in the place of the unrighteous. I shared it earlier, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the what? Righteousness of God. Not that we would become good, not that we would become, no, that we would become righteous. Why? Because only righteous people get into heaven. And, and because of our unrighteousness, we're separated from God. We're enemies of God. All of that is bound up in that term unjust. Don't, don't, don't lessen it. Enemies, let's use biblical terms here. Enemies of God, haters of God, not good people. The, the Romans 3, there are none righteous. No, not one. That's who Christ died for. And the great news is that God has taken the initiative to overcome this alienation by dying in our place. That, that's, what, that's what the word substitute means. When your teacher is sick, kids, a person comes and sits in 
their place for that day, and you call them their what? Your substitute. You and I deserve to be on that cross. You and I deserve to die for the penalty of our sins. And guess what? God interposed His own Son on that cross as our substitute. The just for the unjust. And because of this, the encouragement is this. You and I can and will come home to God if we are in Christ. And he's saying, stand firm in that. That that God has substituted his son for you. That's the gospel. Late at night when sin assails you, early in the morning when sin assails you, when you fall short, when you stumble, when you sin, when you transgress, when you, when you twist the law, when you miss the mark, whatever it is, look to the gospel. Repent, look to the gospel. Christ was my substitute. Look, my hope does not lie in my ability to not sin. My hope lies in Christ. Do I want to sin? No. But my salvation is not in my ability to not sin. No different than my kids. We don't hold out this last name and feeding them and all that. Well, as long as you, you got to do this, this, this. No, no, no. They're Bashams. For better or worse. They're Bashams. He's our substitute. Let, let that encourage you. He's our substitute. But Christ also died, he died for sins as a substitute so that sinners could be reconciled to God. Listen, legally, legally, God is a just judge, and he does not, a just judge cannot simply pronounce the guilty to be innocent. He, he's holy. He doesn't, he doesn't relax. He doesn't hang out with, with rebels and, and, and with sinners. They, they can't come into his presence. That's the whole point. Now, Jesus, you say, well, Jesus ate with sinners. Yes, he did, because he came to seek and save the lost, to make a way for them to come to God. But as sinners, we have, no, we have no way to approach a holy God. And that's the issue. The, the gospel is this. The issue, the dilemma, if you will, not that God is omnipotence, omniscience, and omni, all that sovereignty, not that there's a, a, a dilemma, but how does a holy God reconcile himself to unholy people? How does a just judge forgive guilty people and maintain his justness and righteousness as a judge? That's the issue. And the answer is by crucifying his own son. By taking him who was sinless and crucifying him and, pay, and placing all the guilt and all the wrath and all the punishment on him who was innocent as our substitute so that then God now can rightly reconcile himself to sinners. Does that make sense? Again, Christ took our sinfulness the trade is that we get his righteousness. Now God can freely forgive those who are righteous. He can accept you into his presence. Why? Because you're righteous. And, and these are judicial terms. You have been declared righteous. Therefore, God can be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Why? Because he has declared you righteous. You give Christ your sins... 
he get, you get his righteousness. And by the way, it's a righteousness that exceeds Matthew 5.20, that of the Pharisees, because it's a new heart. It's not an external righteousness. It's a perfect righteousness. It's a righteousness of the one who knew no sin. And though our sin caused separation, Christ has offered reconciliation. Sin has been defeated. This would have been a huge comfort to Peter's readers. The separation has been removed. God is near. Our lives are hidden in Christ. And Peter is reminding, listen, he's reminding them, suffering is not a sign that God has forsaken his people nor, turn, nor turned against his people. The gospel reminds us of that in Christ. Suffering doesn't mean that God's forgotten you, that he's turned his back on you, believer, none of that. Look to Christ. Look to the gospel. That would have been encouragement. That it's better to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for doing evil in God's sight. And lastly, Paul, Peter says here, but having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, Jesus Christ has triumphed over sin and death and all the forces of evil through his suffering. You see how that would have been a huge encouragement, the triumph to Peter's readers, what was accomplished through, through Christ's suffering, how that would have fueled them? Daniel, we sang about it, but 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? It's gone. You know what he says in verse 58? Therefore, be steadfast and immovable. Why? Because your greatest enemy has been removed. Nothing that, ha nothing that this world does to you can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Our greatest enemy has been vanquished. No matter what you face, there's hope. Again, that's what Peter started this whole thing out with. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Listen, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Believers who stand firm in the face of unjust suffering will be vindicated in the end, all to the praise and the glory of the one who held out and offered us hope. That's the promise. That no matter what, you win, believer. No matter what, you'll be vindicated. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, listen to me, the gospel of Jesus Christ alone offers this hope. Stand firm in that hope. Yes, we will suffer. Yes, we may even die. But we will live again as Christ lived through our faith. That's the point. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so will you and I, believer. That's the point. And, and please, please hear this. It's, it's not, again, the gospel, it's not that we know God. It's that He knows us. That, that's the beauty. This is more than just knowing about the gospel. 
This is more than just assenting to some facts. This is God knowing me and adopting me into his family. Now, I only know God because, again, he first knew me. The gospel is literally God befriending me, adopting me. It's so much more than just assenting to, oh, that's factual. It's being known by God. And in Christ, listen, believer, what he's saying is there is never a moment, believer, that God's eyes are off of you. His attention is never distracted from you. There is never a moment in your life, believer, that his care falters or fails. And the gospel reminds us of that. That God is constantly attentive to his children. I mean, the the reality that God's, I mean, think about this, that God's knowledge and forgiveness, it is so utterly realistic, and here's why. Because at every single point, God knows every single thing about you. We can't say that about each other. I've been married to Karen for 15 years. There's things about her I don't know. There's things about me that she probably doesn't know. And the beauty of the gospel is this. God fully knows you. He knows every sin you ever committed that, you're, that you might be committing right now or will commit. And listen to this. He forgave you. Do you see the freedom in that? There, there's nothing that Satan's going to bring up to God tomorrow, today, the next day. And he's going to say, oh man, I didn't know that about Doug. Oh man, if I'd have known that. I didn't know that about Chris. God's salvation for you is in spite of his complete knowledge. The worst about you and I that could ever be known. And yet Christ accepts us. God accepts us through Christ. There's no other gospel that offers that. But again, why? It's based on Christ's work. It's not based on my work. And I access that through faith. But even that's not easy because in faith, I've got to humbly admit that I can do nothing to save myself. Again, there's nothing, there's nothing that God will discover about you, believer, that will disillusion him about you. You're adopted. Do do you see how the gospel enables believers to stand firm? And I apologize, we got to go. I, I literally only had four pages of notes and most of what I said today weren't even in there, so forgive me. I really tried hard to shorten this thing today. I just, I, forgive me, I get excited talking about it. No, but, no, but, but again, you think about that. No, I mean, don't, don't but like, like one millisecond before, but now, Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Grasp that, believer. Your neighbors may condemn you, your friends may condemn you, your family may condemn you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Stand firm in that. Listen, if you're not a believer here today, if you're not a believer, I I, I would beg you, consider that. 
You can be reconciled to God today, all of your sin erased. Look upon Christ. We, we were driving down the road yesterday, I'll close on this, and we were next to the ambulance, and my daughter asked about, and I said, you know what, that's interesting. There was a staff and there was a snake wrapped around the staff, and Sarah said, what is that? And I said, listen, go, go, back, to, go back to Moses in the wilderness, Sarah. Go back to when those snakes were biting God's people. What did Moses do? Moses held up a staff. You know what God said? Anyone who looks upon that staff, they'll be healed. I said, Sarah, every time you see, you know what, that ambulance, that, am, that ambulance, Sarah, is offering people temporary healing. But God tells you about a staff. God, I, I thought about this. God offers us permanent healing through another staff. And Jesus Christ was that staff that was held up in the wilderness. You know, he says, you look upon that, eternal healing. Eternal healing. Parting the Red Sea, salvation. The ark, salvation. Consider that, believer. Consider that, unbeliever. Do not wander away from the gospel, believer. Contemplate the gospel every single second of every single moment of your life and stand firm. Knowing that our salvation was achieved through the just suffering for the unjust. Anything that you and I face will pale in comparison to that. And through Jesus' suffering... He was exalted. Listen to me. Through our suffering, you know what? Our Father exalted, but also you and I will be exalted one day. For I do not consider the present sufferings are worthy to be compared to the glory that is yours through the gospel of Jesus Christ.